Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. We are in our second of two podcasts for the week. So once again, we have Greg Dutcher. Greg, say hello. Hello. And we have Jeff Crotz joining us for the second time. Jeff, say hi to everyone out there. Hello to everyone. Um, Jeff, the last time you were on with us, we had um, promised we were going to talk about um, existential preaching. I'm sorry, not existential preaching. That's a whole. That's a whole different form of preaching. Yeah, that's like a, a Jean. Uh, what is it? Jean, Jean Paul, Paul Sartre. Sartre. I preach, therefore I am. That's kind right. Of thing. Right. So that's uh, right. yeah, I, I, dude, I'll do existential preaching. That's right. I mean, Don't, Jeff, isn't that what you do every Sunday? <laughs> isn't that extemporaneous <laughs> lack of prepared preaching? That's right. That's right. Well, with enough coffee, with enough coffee and caffeine, we can do anything. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Indeed. No, uh, we're we're going to be talking about expository preaching, and actually, um, Greg, one of the things that we've uh, named this podcast is: uh, Can expository preaching uh, last through the 21st century, or is it relevant um, coming into uh, this time frame? Because a lot of people view it as a, a dying art, so to speak. Um, and so, we're just going to touch on that a little bit. Um, through through the next few minutes here and um jeff we just we want to hear your words um on expository preaching um is this something that you practice in your church um do you practice topical preaching a mixture of both um kind of give us your views um on both for us yeah you know it kind of goes back to when i was uh a young young teenager i i guess i was 17 years old so i was towards the end of my late teens and and uh, I was given a, a shoebox full of tapes that were sermons from the book of John on worship, on true worship. I guess it was from John 4, and it was uh, John MacArthur preaching. Hmm. And before that tape series that I listened to, I had never really heard expository preaching. And once I listened to expository preaching or basically preaching from the Bible line by line, verse by verse, and sequenced with the original context, um, I, I hadn't heard it. And once I heard it, I couldn't stop listening to it. Yeah. And I, I tried to listen to other kinds of preaching. And I, I'm not just saying that I became a, a sycophant of John MacArthur in this way. It's just once I realized what it was like to dive deep into the well of the Bible and to look around and look at different, um, you know, details and aspects and and to drink deeply uh, from the well, I didn't want to just listen to stuff that was more superficial. Yeah. I, I, also, I also was raised in a, um, a Baptist setting, an independent Baptist church, and, mm-hmm. and I also went to Liberty University. And I listened to a lot of thematic preaching or topical preaching over my teenage years and college years, especially. And I got to the point where the topics were so predictable that I could even predict illustrations and where the sermon would go and how I would feel about it and what I would do with it or what I would choose to forget. And it was just redundant. And so it was almost like I was discovering the Bible for the first time by hearing expository preaching. So, yeah, I got pretty uh, pretty hooked at that point and studied it through college and seminary, and I preach expository messages basically every week of my life. Yeah, and uh, listen, Jeff, the butter-up moment of this podcast, 
um, I'll tell people, you know, we, we are going to link your church. I think we did that last time too, didn't we, Nathan? I think so, yes. In the, uh, in the description of the podcast. But Jeff is an outstanding expository preacher. I've, I've really enjoyed listening in, Jeff. And I know you've been doing work on Mark. Um, and man, what a book. I did that a few years ago here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first gospel I've ever done. Uh, you know, I mean, the full gospel. I've obviously preached right. out of the gospels before. Uh, and I think a lot of us start with Mark because it is shorter. Um, <laughs> yep. So you're like, well, if I mess it up, at least I, you know, <laughs> it's it's a quicker ending. You know, we we you know we get to a mercy killing a little bit sooner. But uh, I think one of the things I loved about you, Jeff, when we met uh, way back when, when Lisa and I were were dating, and I I needed a place to crash when she was in her senior year, same same year as you. Uh, down there was uh, you know these these off campus guys that was Jeff and his roommate Brian mm-hmm. um, and Jeff <laughs> Jeff and I immediately started talking about Johnny Mac uh, and uh, his preaching and his same story here uh, Jeff my folks here are probably tired of hearing about it but I remember you know same thing I I was saved when I was sixteen heard mainly topical preaching I heard some good preaching. Uh, you know, that was Christ-centered and, and would certainly explain the gospel clearly. Um, sure. But I always felt a disconnect. Like, I, I was reading the Bible on my own, and I was learning things all the time. I was loving it. And I never really even considered, man, wouldn't it be awesome if somebody took this book that I'm reading and sort of went through it, you know, sequentially. But but I never really found uh-huh. that. And then I was listening to a uh, radio program. Back then, it was what? WRBS, it's Shine now, I think. Shine yeah, about. yeah. And there was this guy, uh, John MacArthur, uh, who I remember always talked about God and the gospel and would uh, preach in this sort of Californian way, this almost Midwestern <laughs> accent, I thought. And uh, I realized, man, this guy is actually like, he's in Philippians 1, verse 6 today. And the next time he preaches, he's in 6B. And the next time he preaches, he's in verse 7. And I thought, I wonder how long this is going to go. And um, back then, dude, I, I was a—I mean, I spent most of my money on John MacArthur tapes. I got to go back to your earlier, your earlier impersonation of John. Yeah. Because you did that with me when I was in college, and I never forgot it. Because remember, I went and went to the seminary and got to know John MacArthur. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're comparing his earlier cadence of the 19, late '60s, early '70s. Where he would preach the word of God like this, and it sounds more nasal. <laughs> it was nasally. Yeah. Then he would get he would get on a roll like this and say, "It's true, and it's true, and it's yeah. true." <laughs> well, exactly. later, later, John. I don't know if they turned him down or his voice deepened, but now he just preaches in this slower cadence, and yes. it's the word of God, and you know. He sounds more like the voice of God. Yeah. But I, <laughs> yeah. AKA I, Morgan I, Freeman. Well, yes. And I asked him, I asked him about this transition in homiletics class. Wow. I said, so why did you slow down from your preaching style in the 70s to the 80s to the 90s? Why did you do that? Because you used to preach more rapidly and now slowly. And he acted like he had no idea of what I was talking about. He just wow. looked at me. Yeah. Wow. And all you can do is say, yeah, you know, I guess I'm just off base, you know, and I, I'm sorry I asked that question. <laughs> Dude, you, honestly, that's where you want to bring in the, the evidence, right? The audio evidence and uh, say you, you can't hear that difference. You're right. No, you I, really don't. I heard you him don't. recently. Uh, I'm doing a Wednesday morning group with a bunch of guys, and uh, we're uh, just beginning the book of Acts. 
So uh, I guess recently, uh, Jeff, he did a two-part sort of intro to the Book of Acts. It was a great message. Uh, yeah. th- this was only maybe two, three Christmases ago, I think. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the voice, the cadence, you're right, it's deeper, it's slower, it's, it's interesting. It is. So looking at expository preaching, um, what would you say three of the main benefits are um, of expository preaching? Jeff or Greg, either one. Okay. Jeff, uh, why don't you take it and make sure they all start with the same okay. letter? <laughs> I, I think yes. that's critical that you be alliterative in this section. That's right. Well, I think it's it's critical. It's crucial. It's uh, crying out to us. Oh, there you go, man. It's it, would be, yeah, it would be criminal not to alliterate. Oh, that's good. No, He's done this I, once or twice. Yeah. I think that expository preaching, it, it takes the pressure off of the preacher to know yes. what to preach the next Sunday. And you've heard this and read this as an advantage for expository preaching, but but we live it. You know, I mean, the fact that after Easter, I know that I'm going to find myself in Mark and it's the next story or paragraph or idea after the healing of the paralytic. Yeah, And I know that because I know that the paralytic is where I left off. And mm-hmm. it it's the idea that the authority, secondly, is found in the Bible and not in any, you know, profound thought that I would have or, or you know, illustration or life help, you know, uh, felt need thing that I'm touching or connecting with. It's, it takes the emphasis off of me as the preacher and it puts the authority where it should be, which is on the Bible. I, I think expository preaching practically is the idea of placing it's almost like as the preacher you're putting one foot on the bible the whole time your 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 foot is always planted on home base and then you're you're stretching and reaching you know through your own instrumentality of speaking and communicating and pleading to connect with the people but really everything comes back to where your foot is planted on the home base, which is the Bible, and you're you're connecting people to the source, which is the Scripture. And if you if you preach by faith, it's not academics. You're preaching Christ, but you're preaching based on the authority of Christ, which is found in His Word. And so it it really does ground the preaching event in the authority of the Word of God and the magnification of Christ as you do it, rather than all the other things that preaching could fall into being, which would be, you know, off the path or off track. Yeah. Keeps you on track. Yeah, yeah that, that's the first uh, word that, I guess, comes to my mind, Jeff, and you nailed it there, uh, authority. You know, it, it yeah. is strange sometimes to think, you know, wow, I'm I'm speaking in front of a, a group of people, some of whom I think are probably more, well, not probably, definitely more spiritually advanced <laughs> than I am, uh, that, right. that have known Christ longer, have walked with him longer. So in a sense, we're saying that's not what ultimately qualifies. I, I, I stress ultimately because obviously there are qualifications for an elder and you know, you, know, right. you read 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, yeah. Yeah. but what ultimately qualifies the preacher is the authority of the word of God that it can always be preached because uh, that's where our power truly comes from. It's, it's not in that, Hey, I've lived a godlier life than you. So I've earned the right to share a couple of tips and techniques. 
uh, that might help you. And uh, if you did that, then each week you'd be playing leapfrog. You'd say, hey, who, uh, who, you know, who, who's walking the best this week? Who's, yeah. who's had the most rigorous walk that can share some insights? Uh, that can have right. a place in a community group setting, a Bible study setting where people are sharing things. But you're really taking it out of the preacher's experience putting it uh putting it on the word i i guess the other thought that comes to my mind and i think i remember us talking about this jeff way back when before we were actually doing this but i yeah. found it to be true you know i i have my hobby horses mm-hmm. um i'm sure you have yours jeff there are certain topics for whatever reason certain things grab our interest and you know for me the health wealth prosperity gospel is a favorite whipping boy uh that i love to beat <laughs> up on and uh you know i i, I have to guard myself because i think I honestly think, dude, if I preached topically all the time, eight out of ten messages would be hitting that pretty hard, at least yeah. where I am now, because there, there's a few uh, people in my life that have been harmed by it in, in a real way. Uh, I've been talking to one recently who's been deeply harmed by it and uh, actually lost money, uh, lost yeah. friendships as a result. So it's just fresh <laughs> in my mind, and that's fine. Um, I'm not saying an expository preacher can't, find his way to his hobby horse, but it's harder. You know, it's harder when you've got a text in front of you that's about financial giving. You've got a text in front of you. Well, actually, that's an easy path. But, you know, you you have a text in front of you about repentance and faith. You you, you have a text in the Old Testament about, you know, Uzzah reaching out and dying when he touches the ark. I mean, it's you're going to have to work a lot harder. So I think the preacher's being protected. More importantly, the congregation is being protected. Uh, because they know the, what the text is, they and well, they may, they may yeah. not know it, they may not understand it, and it's your job to explain it. There's another aspect to what you're saying that I'll just hit on, and that is that the Bible will oftentimes repeat something that maybe you don't want to keep repeating, but the Bible is repeating it. Yes, uh, like for instance, the theme of sexual immorality or the theme of, like you said, giving. It can be awkward to talk about giving and calling the congregation to give more, but if the Bible's talking about it, then you're talking about it. Yes. If if the Bible is saying we're not supposed to love the world or love entertainment or love uh, the riches of this world or live for money, um, you're, t- you know, you're talking about it. And there are people in the congregation that as a pastor you know are struggling with certain issues personally. Yeah. But if the Bible is your guide and you're going sequentially through it, then they know that you're not picking on them as much as in the providence of God, the Bible is picking on them because you're just coming to it um, naturally. Great yeah. point. So yeah. that, that helps. Honestly, yeah. you're coming to it. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. a great point, Jeff, because uh, I've often thought that, you know, of the well, and I'm sure you've had this thought. I've had it sometimes where there's a, a situation going on in the church that, that is potentially divisive, and you happen to be in First Corinthians. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're preaching on division, and you know, you're right. If people know, no, he left off last week at the verse just before this section. Um, right. That's, that's an excellent point, and I, I do think uh, what you said, Jeff, the, the, the pressure— um, of having to choose a topic each week. Now, again, you know, I did want to say a word or two because I knew you were a fan of Spurgeon too, Jeff, yes. uh, as well. Spurgeon to me is is sort of the exception that proves the rule. If you actually follow, if you go to uh, Spurgeon.org, uh, yeah. you know, look at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, you know, the the pulpit records and all that, you will see there, there wasn't sequential ex, you know, expositional preaching. Um, 
and I've even heard uh, MacArthur talk about this, Jeff. That you know he is. Yeah, I have too. He, he was a rare man. Um, yeah, I would say his sermons were virtually always textual. Um, so uh, I've sort of learned from him. If you preach topically, that's fine. I, I, that's not to me the steady diet that we should strive for. Uh, but when you do go topical from time to time, it doesn't mean you don't go textual. Uh, I mean, I've, I've actually talked to some guys that see, I'm going to talk about such and such, uh, just for like three or four weeks. And I I'll ask them at some point. So man, what, what text are you going to hit that with? And they either don't know, they haven't thought about it, or frankly, they feel confident that they have enough, they have enough thoughts and insights on their own that the text is almost irrelevant. Uh, so Spurgeon was exceptional i mean he would be in first corinthians one week and maybe deuteronomy the next mm-hmm. um yeah but yeah. He, but he was textual no the thing with spurgeon is that he was theological you know i think yes. he was definitely textual he would as i understand it and i don't i haven't done a whole lot of research on this but i think spurgeon basically edited sermons wrote taught and read all week long yeah and and had an orphanage and in yeah. a seminary and, and a seminary yeah and then on and then on Saturday he would pick a text out and he would write an outline down and think through his introduction as I've seen I think one photograph of a sermon manuscript that he would bring in it had you know a, a couple paragraphs as an introduction and then an outline an annotated outline, and then he would just preach from that. Yeah, great great anecdote on that, uh, Jeff, that I heard from Alistair Begg. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Uh, when I was at a pastor's yes. conference years ago, he said uh, it, it's sort of like the time Spurgeon. Uh, it was a rare Saturday night where he was still uncertain what he was going to preach on the next Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Which for me, Jeff, would send me into full out panic mode. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, believe me, there have been many Saturday nights I'm still working on it, but I, I generally know at least what I'm going to cover, maybe not how to cover it. But this is one where he didn't know what he was going to preach on. And the next, you know, morning he came down to breakfast uh, and his wife handed him a, a, uh, a sheet of paper where she had scratched some points. And he looked at it rather puzzled and said, What is this? And, uh, you know, she said, oh, this is this is the outline you were calling out in your sleep last night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ah. so, yeah, that was a big share that I just everybody's jaw dropped. And said, wow. But that, that goes to your point that he was so immersed in Scripture all week yeah. that in a sense, it's it's like if you ask Spurgeon to, uh, you know, hey, preach, preach something out of Romans eight. Did he yeah. technically, you know, do exegetical work in Romans 8 that week? Maybe not, but he had been doing it in general maybe for 20 yeah. or 30 years. Before we actually uh, kind of move away um, from from this idea, um, why, Jeff, do you think um, expository preaching is a dying art? This is kind of one of the things that we're going to, to title yeah. this section. Why do you think it's a dying art? Why do you think more and more people are pushing away from it and pushing into topical preaching? Yeah, I I think that it might it might be a dying art, but I also think that because people are are you know the pendulum of the culture even in Christian circles is swinging back and forth, right? So just like people are gravitating back towards the hymns or towards uh, deeper, more theologically uh, deep lyrics, even in contemporary songs. Um, that we want to worship from. I think expository preaching is probably rebounding back. That's 
that's my thought. And I think the reason why it might be coming back is because people want the real thing. What, what thematic preaching does, or topical preaching does often, when it's not Spurgeon-esque, um, but someone like you know, Mark Driscoll, um, who's been you know, very thematic, very topical, even though he, he used to preach uh, you know, through books of the Bible, it was, it was very applicationally thematic, right? Agreed, mm-hmm. agreed. Uh, a, lot, a lot of what people are doing in that kind of forum is they're, they're broadcasting themselves, they're branding themselves. Uh, someone like, uh, not to name names, but somebody like Francis Chan. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've appreciated a lot of what Francis Chan is, has done, but you know, people who are very funny, you know, naturally humorous, uh, people who are um, naturally entertaining to listen to, can teach things thematically or topically in a way that brands their personality as much as um, focuses on Christ and the Word. Whether people are doing that wittingly or unwittingly, thematic preaching can definitely lend towards uh, that, more of a personality cult pulpit. And uh, I think that the millennial generation is going to move away from that because we've been let down. I say we. I'm past the millennial age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well older than that. No, but yeah, you're I you're think, you're a post millennial age guy, Jeff. But uh, right, well, maybe right, I shouldn't right. put that out there. But <laughs> <laughs> I am all millennial. Yeah, no. uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess all that to say that expository preaching is putting the accent mark on the authority of Scripture. One thing that can be, uh, I think, a wrong emphasis on expository preaching is the idea that you're, you're preaching line by line, verse by verse in a Bible book to teach them how to study their Bibles. Now, that's a great sort of tagline for expository preaching. It, it even can be a decent motivation for expository preaching, but I think you derail the event of preaching if you're just trying to teach people how to study their Bibles while you preach it to them. Yes. And... And I think there is the dynamism of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God as the authoritative source, you know, as a preacher reproves, rebukes, and exhorts a person and challenges them to grow and be like Jesus, that happens that's different than like in a classroom where you are trying to give scope and sequence and historical context and exegetical nuances from the text. Um, Those things might be accoutrements to the preaching event. But that should not be what people are focused on when you're giving them the Word of God, I, I think. And, and so there's a balance. I, I'm not, I don't think the trend for expository preaching is going to trend towards academics, but I think it is going to trend in the church away from personality cult um, preaching because I think our generation or the, the new generation sees through it, I should say. Yeah, I, I, spot on, Jeff. I mean, to me, the healthiest sign of an effective expository sermon. And man, I love when I hear this, and I'm sure you do too, is when people will say to you, um, man, I I understand this text now. I understand this passage yeah. better. I, I, I Really, I know God better because of knowing this passage better, as opposed right. to you're a dynamic preacher, you're funny, right. this helped me. I mean, that that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's... Uh, 
a legendary right. sort of uh, apocryphal story or not, but I've heard preachers say it for years where Spurgeon is walking down towards the back of the church, church after he's preached, and a lady says to him, wonderful sermon this morning, Mr. Spurgeon, and he doesn't say anything. She says it again, he doesn't say anything. She insists a third time that, she igno- that he acknowledge what she said. And he said, I did hear it, my dear lady, and I heard it from the devil uh, as he whispered into my ear when I walked by uh, to, to, to make sure that the, you know, the power of the yeah. passage, the power of the text. And I love, Jeff, your emphasis on the preaching event. Um, yes. My confidence grows exponentially in proportion to how much scripture is getting to the congregation. Uh, my stories, yeah. illustrations, practical wisdom, uh, my confidence is far less, or it, it, it should be, let me say it yeah. that way, but. Thank you so much, um, Jeff. It's It's been great talking about this and, and really would love to keep talking about this, but we are actually rapidly running out of time um, because I do want to hit the other aspect, and that is topical preaching, because at some point in, in every pastor's career, even if you are um, diehard um, on, on preaching through the Word of God verse by verse, you have to to stop and you have to hit topics and we're coming into Easter um, and, yep. and you go into Christmas and other seasons where you have to hit the topics. And so um, we're actually going to take a little um, sidebar here and, and just um, talk to us about the advantages um, about hitting the topics around Easter and Christmas. Um, and I know leading into that, we also want to talk a little bit about um, Easter and apologetics. So um, just real quick, Jeff, um, hit hit the advantages of, of kind of moving yourself topically into Easter. And then Greg, you do the same and, and talk to us a little bit about some of the apologetics around Easter and, and great opportunities that people can have to speak with, with others during this time. Yeah, I... I think that it's, uh, you know, we've heard this before, but the advantage of Christmas and Easter is that people are coming who don't typically come to church. You know, they're showing up. And even Palm Sunday, we had a pretty big crowd um, just of people that, you know, get out of bed and show up. And at some level, what I don't want to do is just tell them the exact same thing they've heard, you know, the four times that they come to church, you know, so it's almost like they've got it memorized and and they've heard it before. But what I like to do is cover the text that covers the theme of Christmas or Easter. You know, like I'll I'll definitely be in the narrative of of Jesus um rising from the dead. But you know, I, what I like to do is hit them with some idea that they've never thought of before, seeing it from a different angle. Um on on last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, I was bringing out the issue of the fact that I believe that when the crowds were swelling and when they're raising the palm branch, that they were not only doing that in the tradition of the Passover, you know, which it was during, um, it was during Passover, but it, it, it was also, you know, the idea of them waving the branches, remembering the Feast of Booths where, you know, God had provided for the children of Israel through the wanderings of the wilderness, and they, they lived under palm branch tents, you know, and, and it was the idea of God being the provider, but that they had kind of bought into the superficiality when Jesus was coming to town of, man, could this be the moment of insurrection where we overthrow the Roman government and and they're quoting the Hillel Psalm of 118 and saying, save us, save us now. And 
maybe it was more like a bloodthirsty lust, you know, to overthrow the Romans instead of celebrating Christ because they were going to be pretty fickle, right, a week later and say, crucify him. And the Pharisees were wanting to shut, you know, wanting Jesus to shut the disciples down, you know, who were on the roadside because they were getting nervous themselves that Rome might squelch the whole thing. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you know, when you cut out little cardboard palm branches for your little kid to wave around as they sing the song, you know, the the children's song before the sermon, they might be off put by a point like that. You know, like these people were really superficial in their hosannas rather than um, sincere. And oh, by the way, that's much of Christendom and you guys out in the congregation might fit that, you know, that that caricature. (laughs) So, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. And there's a lot of people who want to reform politics in our country with Christianity, and I'm kind of hitting on that and digging around. So, I mean, I kind of take note. I'm probably a little bit of a curmudgeon, you know, with with my preaching event. So, I'm I'm kind of getting under people's skin a little <laughs> bit with uh, with hitting different angles that you wouldn't expect through the theme. So, that's my my deal. Yeah. No, but I I couldn't agree more, Jeff. I mean, it's true. I've heard somebody say that that the the, the the dude that comes Christmas and Easter, you know, if they if they choose to remember uh, what they've heard, if if they can remember what they've heard, they're they're going to be experts on the resurrection and the birth of Jesus, you know, because that's pretty much all they ever hear. So yeah, I'm I'm with you too, and I find that not just for skeptics, unbelievers, young Christians, uh, Jeff, but even the um, you know seasoned veteran believer. I think yeah. I can both say there there is a limited canon, particularly at Christmas. I mean, let's face it. You've got nothing in Mark, really. You've got the theological prologue in John, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, the first 18 <laughs> verses, and really one in 14 is what everybody likes. And um, then you've got Luke and Matthew that actually give some nitty-gritty detail. And, you know, you can kind of wring that out a couple of years. But what I find is if you're at one outpost – for yeah. more than maybe six or seven years, you're like, yeah, I don't know what to preach this year. Um, right. So yeah, sometimes you'll do a redo, uh, and you'll you'll maybe take something, try to breathe some fresh life into it. Uh, but I do think the 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 challenge with familiar stories, and I really try to hit that same thing with Christmas and Easter, is okay. What you know, you're not trying to make up an angle. But you are trying to search harder. What what angle, what biblical opening can I find here that we don't normally think about? Um, right, you know, right. So and 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 try to to take it from that angle. You know, Nathan, you've probably heard me say this a million times. I love hitting Jeff. I've probably done this too much, but I love uh, hitting the um, the angels portrayal. Yeah. Yeah. In either Christmas or Easter, you know how yeah. every time, virtually without exception, an angel appears. You know, he basically yeah. has to say, "Don't pee your pants, don't die." Um, you know, because <laughs> right. and then I'll I'll contrast that. And sometimes I show slides of the precious moment angel. You know, the little chubby, uh, innocent Victorian angel, and and you know, sort of show the contrast to get people thinking that wow, the way I've sort of been inundated with angel folklore is is pretty different than the way the Bible presents it. That might be a an angle uh, for even the seasoned believer to think about in a uh, in a fresh way. Uh, That's right. Yeah, I, I normally do, Jeff. I I normally will do a Christmas series. In recent years, I've gotten shorter um, 
every so often I might do one the Sunday after Thanksgiving all the way through. Yeah. In more recent years, I might just do you know the week before Christmas, Christmas Eve, uh, and do a very condensed series. And that, that's sort of taking advantage uh, of the opportunity that the culture affords us. You know, everybody's thinking about yeah. it. Uh, there's sort of a, a welcome, um, you know, receptivity to Christmas. Uh, and it is, you know, from a theological standpoint, the incarnation is pretty important. Um, yeah. You know, sorry, Rob Bell had to get that out there. He, he might feel it's not as important, but <laughs> just in case he's listening. Yeah. Cause I'm sure he's tuning in, tuning in. He's taking time, time away from spiritually coaching Oprah to tuning into these go to 11. But, um, Absolutely. I, I think that's critical resurrection there's more uh this week jeff the angle that i'm really taking good friday and easter is sort of the spiritual warfare angle i i think i did something on this seven or eight years ago um you know colossians 2 christ uh, disarming the authorities the rulers demonic powers uh in the death resurrection event uh so that sort of came first and so on good friday i'm going to look at satan's role in the good friday account uh, and really the passion account as a whole. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I think, um, you know, not being provocative just to, oh, that's the sexy way to preach, but as, right. as a way of taking what is familiar, and, you know, I mean, the old uh, adage is what, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. That may be true. I think it breeds apathy, more likely. Yeah. I think we're yeah. familiar, yeah. so we don't pay as much attention. Yeah. And, and this happens you know, to me yeah. when, when I hear somebody open Luke 15 and do the prodigal son, in my yeah. pride, I was like, dude, you're not going to tell me anything I don't know about this passage. I've heard it a right. million times. Uh, and uh, it's amazing when um, something new opens up. Well, what what I have found lately, which this is maybe a little bit of a practical slant um, to what we're talking about. But um, uh, anyway, you guys invited me to speak, so I'll just share something. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but late, I don't know if you've ever seen that little two-minute uh, vignette on Piper and how he prepares sermons. It's, it's you know, he does some Q&As that are really snazzy and and answers a question. Well, they asked him how he prepares sermons. And Interesting. I don't think what, I've seen this. Well, one of the things he does is he starts his sermon on Friday and basically types his, he, he does exegesis for like four hours on Friday morning and then just types and doesn't stop typing until he's done Friday night. And wow. then and then Saturday, he'll look it over, get it inside his heart, and preach it, probably Saturday night or Sunday morning, or both. And I have found that whether it's exegetical work or a prior sermon, that if I sit and compose type through what I'm going to say, it actually gets in my heart in a deeper level than just, you know, trying to cull and, and put research together, you know, on notes, uh, you know, by scribbling them down or, or even typing in more of an outline form, but actually taking time and fully and thoroughly writing your way clear with an open heart where the Lord actually lays things on your heart while you type. Um, is a very effective way to rethink through a passage like, uh, you know, the account of Christ, you know, being risen from the dead or, you know, the, the miracle birth of Jesus or, or whatever, right? I mean, these, 
These dynamic events in Scripture, even though we've heard them before, if you, if you take the time meditatively, even through the fingertips of typing, uh, you can oftentimes not find something new or that wasn't there, but you're saying it in a fresh way. And uh, that's, that's been helpful for me. Yeah, 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 uh, absolutely. I, I think, Jeff, that is the, uh, you know, because, I, I mean, you've been in Anchorage uh, how long now? Six, six, six years. years. Yeah, you're coming up on it, Jeff. Like I've often thought, as much as you know, I never want to leave my church. I love my church. That man, if, if if I could be at a place, different church every five years, I'd be set. <laughs> every holiday, no stress. Uh, remember what I did five or six years earlier. So, uh, but you know, when you're at a, a post for a long time, uh, you know, eventually you think, okay, when am I going to reuse something? Because um, you know, I, I'd rather reuse something I feel good about. Uh, then sort of squeeze something out just to make it fresh. Uh, these are the kinds of uh, seasonal choices that you have to make. So it yep. uh, proves to be interesting. Well, Greg and Jeff, thank you both so much for that. We're actually going to move um, into more specifically now. Um, it, it is the time of the week where a lot of people um, ask questions about Christ, um, questions about uh, the resurrection. And, you know, I think it was... Uh, Four or five years ago, James Cameron did a whole thing about he found the the grave of Jesus. Um, so, what would you say to someone who who brings something like that up to you? You know, what would be an apologetic defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Man, deep question, bro. Uh, huh. I'm just gonna keep lingering until Jeff comes up. No, I uh, <laughs> no, I, I loved. I, I mean, that if you can get into a conversation with somebody, I mean, this it might not be your lead in. But you're with a friend at Starbucks who's a skeptic. I, that's my favorite topic, when you can get on to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I was looking at 1 Corinthians 15 recently, you know, which is one of the earliest creedal formulations in the church, you know, yeah. that, I, you know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. I mean, the death really gets a sentence. The burial gets a sentence. And then he says, and he was raised. And then it yes. gets all that detail. You know, he, yeah. he he appeared to the he appeared to Peter. He appeared to more than five hundred, most of whom are still alive. Um, you know, uh, he he appeared to me. Paul says as one untimely born. All this it's it's like an annotated outline of that third point. Yeah. So you've got the death, the burial, the resurrection. So it's obvious that the the stock they put in to the resurrection, rightly so, and the implication. That, uh, you know, hey, 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive, it's obviously an, you know, uh, an implication that go go talk to them. Yeah. Go search it out. I mean, it's hard to find five people that are willing to keep a, a concocted uh, myth <laughs> a secret for too long. Yeah. You know, multiply that out, uh, you know, to get to 500 people, um, yeah. different places, different backgrounds. I mean, Paul is that confident. That he is saying, I've often said, Jeff, to you know, to people, uh, Michael Phelps is a local hero. Obviously, he's had some trouble in recent times with the press and some of his behavior. But just keeping on the uh, on the Olympic note, I've uh, often done this when I've taught teenagers. I said, "Hey guys, wh- what have I told you uh, that I beat Michael Phelps uh, in in a private swim race? Who would who would who would believe that?" And they kind of look at my you know pot belly protruding over my belt and seem a little bit uh, incredulous and 
I will say, no, 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 it's, it's true, guys. Say, so what, what would you want to ask me if you thought it might be true? And eventually they say, well, I mean, can you prove it? Uh, who, who saw it? What, what evidence do you have? And uh, I say, well, uh, yeah, it was just the two of us. Um, if you ask him, of course, he'll be embarrassed, so he'll say it's not true. But we were uh, in a private uh, you know, swimming pool at a college. We were the only two there. The doors were locked, but I beat him. Um, you know, and I asked them, what, what's your confidence in my confession? And of course they have none. And then I say, okay, well, uh, my, my wife was there, you know, my wife, Lisa saw it, you know, well, yeah, but she's your wife. She'll cover for you, you know, and that sort of thing. And then eventually they don't know Lisa do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, she's not a good example. One, <laughs> one of my kids might cover for me. It's Benjamin. You know, he'll, he'll say, I, I beat him. And you sort of extrapolate out and, uh, say, well, uh, what have I said? You know, 50 people saw it, 100 people. And it's neat today, especially with social media, Facebook, yeah. the real sort of detective will say, oh, you could you could find that out. You know, and I said, yeah, I'll, well, I'll, I'll give you some names and track it down yourself. Well, I think, I think that it would be hard to verify that you beat Michael Phelps in swimming, like distance. But in terms of water polo, yeah. I have heard that you're quite a water polo player. <laughs> And, you know, size in terms of size and shape and stuff, it doesn't matter as much if you've got the goods. So, Absolutely, you know, dude. Yeah. I thought you were going to take that to a different different spot. Jeff. I thought we were going to talk about his diet. Dude, that guy's diet is my dream diet. I mean, if, if you watch it, he eats like three fried egg sandwiches every yeah. morning. Now, granted, you know, he eats something like 7,000 calories a day and burns eight. Yeah. Uh, I could do the intake part. <laughs> yeah. I would need somebody yeah. else to work on the That's right. <laughs> the other part. So, uh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, and to to invite a kid into that or even, you know, a thinking adult, uh just say, "Man, if I put it out there and I mean it, you know, uh that hey, no, 500 people and you start naming names, that's that you're setting yourself up to be discredited yeah. pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, when you make a bold assertion like that, just say, think about yeah, Paul writing to a contemporary audience saying, yeah, go, go ask them. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. is that confident. Yes. Well, I think that I, I've, I've been influenced by, uh, the presuppositional apologetical methodology, you know, since seminary, uh, based on Cornelius Van Til's presuppositional apologetics and sure. so i i'm i'm bent that way and so i think that way and even though paul is citing you know the half brother of jesus he's citing himself he's citing the 500 all those people now are dead right right <laughs> and right. so you know they're alive in heaven uh so we can't really ask their opinion as to whether or not they saw him but at the same time, it doesn't undo the fact that Paul was using evidences as a, uh, you know, as a background, as a logical way to say, look, I'm putting myself out there. So I agree with that. But nowadays, in the 21st century, I think that it really comes down to when you read the text, is the Lord illuminating that text in the heart of the reader to say, yes, I know with certainty that Christ has risen from the dead. Even if I don't talk to those people, I know it because the Lord has shown me from Scripture that this is, um, again, back to MacArthur, right? It's true, and it's true, and it's true. <laughs> yeah, you know it's true. Said, yeah. 
right? You know it's true because the Holy Spirit impresses the truthfulness on it. You you believe it's true because thy word is a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. Second Corinthians 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. You're illuminated. You, you say, man, this is this is Jesus, and he has risen from the dead. As, I mean, when I read the scene where the angel is saying, he's not here, he's risen, in my sanctified imagination, I'm there, and I believe it, yes. as if the angel spoke it directly to me. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that we unplug our minds from logic or, or evidences or, or, you know, these things, but the level at which I believe in the resurrection is life and death to me. Yeah. I mean, I would give my life for the truth of the resurrection. And I believe that. And I find joy in that thought. It's weird, you know, but that only comes from, I think, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit where you know it's true. And that's why even, even when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, you know, if Christ is not risen, we're all to be pitied. Yeah. yeah. Even that yeah. even that has presuppositions to it. You know, the idea that there is an afterlife, that there would be a judgment, Good that point. there would be a hell and all that stuff. You're presupposing all of that. And so I think it's just that he's using logic there, but he's also using presuppositions to to make the thinker go, yeah, you know, I I need to believe the whole kit and caboodle because there is something that I'm believing already. And anyway, it's just kind of weird, you know. I I I think that I think evidences are good, but I don't necessarily think that they are the the ground for things. But that's no, just me. no, and uh, that's a great qualifier, Jeff. It's one of those things we were just talking about that since we began this Wednesday group. I'm doing in Acts one that it's so interesting because I mean Acts. You know, we, we've got Jesus in Acts 1 giving orders through the Holy Spirit. I said, why do you think that phrase was used there so early? I mean, we, we wouldn't bat an eye if it said Jesus was giving orders to the 12 after his resurrection. Yeah, of course he was. He's the king. He's the king of glory. Right. He can order them however he wants. But Paul says through the Spirit, and it's a little preview. We know he's going to be <laughs> the main character, Acts 2, Pentecost, and then empowering the church You know, all the way through the book of Acts. So we've got this book devoted to the explosive power of the Holy Spirit, and yet in Acts 1, you've got Jesus in his resurrected form showing himself, and it says, through many proofs. Uh, you know, some of the texts say convincing proofs. Uh, so, you know, we, we talked about that last week. How does a person go from darkness to light, from death to life? You know, the Holy Spirit. He throws the switch. Period. Uh, right. sovereign regeneration. That's, that's how it works. Um, and in that there are evidences. So it, it to, to, to me, it's one of those paradoxical, uh, earthly means, supernatural yes. means that, um, God tells us to use these earthly means. And, you know, and I always say, Hey, when you're talking to a skeptic, use reason, don't rely on reason. You know, it, right. use it as a means, you know, to say, yes, Hey, um, I mean, think about it, you know, and I've often said, say I I was inventing a religion, um, you know, and and its central figure was the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I'm partial to him. And, um, (laughs) you know, you you got to put your faith and trust in the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And for whatever reason, you know, we're handing out marshmallows for our version of communion. And, you know, we get this big thing going. And then all of a sudden the Romans, if I'm back there in the first century, 
you know, say, hey, we're going to put a stop to this. And they say, hey, you, you, you better recant. Here's your head, Dutcher, on the chopping block. Uh, recant or you're going to lose your head, that sort of thing. I, right. I'm saying at that point, I'm thinking I've had a pretty good gig. Um, you know, I've, I've had a good ride. I've got my best-selling book on the New York Times list. Uh, you know, I can just, hey, guys, it was, it was a fun 10-year ride, but we're done. And, you know, to put that thought, I view it like putting a, a stone, a little pebble in the shoe of the skeptic. You know, isn't it weird? They just died. They, they, you know, there's an opportunity to recant when the going gets tough, when the rubber meets the road, but they don't. But, Jeff, I think to your point, that, you know, you can't persuade somebody <laughs> into saving faith. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you take them to a point and you're still trusting that the Holy Spirit comes and, uh, you know, throws the switch. So I think that is yeah. important. And I think for the evidential apologist, you know, the one yeah. that is, is sort of the Norman Geisler approach, ironically, the R.C. Sproul approach, um, yes. you know, is to make sure that, yeah, you're using reason, you're using logic, but you're not relying on it. Because what I find happens is, in my early days, Jeff, I was a an unwitting evidential apologist that would point to evidences, and then I would get angry at unbelievers for not getting saved. Um, <laughs> because really what I was saying was, you know, your wisdom, your latent dormant wisdom should rise up to meet my brilliant argumentation, and that should throw the switch and you get saved. The only problem with that is the Holy Spirit is totally uninvolved. Um, and, you know, of course, you get to that point, you realize, wow, if the Holy Spirit doesn't move, it's not going to happen. So yeah. I, I think that's a, a good balance. No, I agree. I agree with you totally. It's, it's funny. I just had a conversation before this one with, uh, you know, basically a hurting Christian who was struggling to keep his faith and he's questioning where he is. And at some level, I think that using logic is helpful at that moment because when someone is wrestling with whether they believe or not, it is helpful to just get them thinking, you know, and just get them to even compare the validity of Christianity compared to all other religions. And I mean, there's such a case to be made for the logical uh, uh, conclusion that there is a God and that, and that God, the God of scripture makes so much more sense than all other false gods. And so that can be helpful. And so don't hear me to say that you're not supposed to do that type of work also. And then especially the evidence is from scripture themselves, but sure. Uh, from scripture itself but anyway it's interesting I, I there's a reason mere christianity is you know perennially sold <laughs> and yes. is still you know just beloved and i don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh tim keller but he's written the book of reason for reason god, god fantastic yeah. Yep. yeah right and so yeah these are very helpful books and and Tim Keller, he is a logician. I mean, he is a guy who just gets your mind working linearly. He'll yes. he'll create straw men. He'll say, you know, well, this is why secularists believe things in this way. And then here's the real answer from Scripture. Yeah. And that's a very helpful way to get someone thinking so that you set the conditions for the Scripture to do the work. So Yeah, agree. I get yeah. it. So we've we've talked about um, the importance of preaching through 
um, the scripture, but also the importance of taking time to um, preach topically during this time of the year and thinking about how we can approach people this time of the year um, who who aren't believers. What I want to do, uh, just very uh, br- briefly, both uh, Jeff and Greg, is I want you to think about um, two or three uh, books um, or articles um, that you would recommend to a believer to read this time of the year um, to help start preparing their hearts for Easter, things that maybe you do every year or things that you recommend to people to do, Um, just two or three things, and then just real quick, um, why those particular pieces of work? Yeah, I uh, almost every year. This year, I did not. I wish... You know, for credibility, I could say that I did. Uh, I've taken to read John Stott's uh, "The Cross of Christ." I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I've 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 loved that book. I I think um, it was one of Stott's best works. Uh, you know, a few of yeah. his works were, were were less than stellar, but this was a <laughs> you know this this was a really I think outstanding book that got atonement right. Just a, is is a great great discussion about the cross. Uh, it's a pretty weighty book. It's an IVP book. It came out in the mid '80s, but it's it's becoming sort of a modern classic. The way Knowing God and and other books in that vein are. Um, if somebody wanted to pick that up now, I mean, it's a great read. Uh, you're not going to likely read it by Sunday, right? right. Uh, so yeah, I, I right. would say a book that stands out to me. I actually just looked it up, Nathan, before our podcast. Amazon right now, as of four o'clock this afternoon, Eastern, you know, uh, <laughs> time, daylight savings time. Um, it was A.W. Uh, a. Pink's um, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross oh, yeah. is only, I think, 99 cents. I read that book, wow, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just some great meat in there. Yeah. Really good meat. And it's pretty short, pretty punchy, the chapters. And, you know, you, you might be able to read them all through. But uh, his chapter on the cry of dereliction, I remember, yeah. stands out as outstanding. Uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His chapter on... Um, on the uh, the forgiveness of the thief, yeah. uh, I remember was was excellent too. Uh, so that's a good one. Another one that you might be able to download to your Kindle or your sort of ebook reader is uh, Sproul's. I think it's the Truth About the Cross. Mm. Another short version, just very solid treatment. I th- those are just some great books to be reading now, so that you go into this weekend and you, you know you've really got some substance to bring yeah. uh, to your your singing and your praying and your just thinking and talking about your family, those things stand out. You you got any, Jeff? Yeah, I, I got a couple ideas. Um, I'm probably not as... Uh, my bent going into holiday uh, seasons is probably not to read the heavier things sure. as much as sure. maybe to relax a little bit and, and try to try to get my heart to devotionally engage. Uh, and a couple ways that I would do it is one, and this will sound really old school, but just opening the Bible and reading the narratives surrounding whether it's, you know, the resurrection or the birth of Christ or yeah. Palm Sunday or whatever, reading the narratives to my children and reading them slowly and, and not, not just in animation, but just reading through the narratives very carefully is, is helpful to my own heart. I, I personally don't like reading fiction. Um, a whole lot. I yep. just don't. I mean, it's just me. I, my wife is an English major from college, and she just devours everything fiction of all stripes, and, and so she's doing that. And but the way that I engage in fiction, like reading 
the Chronicles of Narnia or something by Tolkien or reading uh, George MacDonald or something weird like that yeah. is to actually read it very to read it very slowly and carefully to my children and the story comes to life that way through the eyes of my kids as they're fascinated. So reading gospel narratives to my children, because I have um, six kids and four of them are boys, and my three youngest are boys. They're twin boys, Jacob and Esau. I think I told you that last <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> It's Carson and Brady, and then and then my littlest boy, Owen. And uh, these... These little dudes, they just take it in and are fascinated by uh, what's what's right there on in the Bible. And I don't even read the children's Bibles to them. I just read, uh, you know, the inspired text, the English Standard Version, and um, <laughs> I just read it to them, and and they enjoy it. The other the other place that you can go for, I think, some healthy devotional material is John Piper. Yeah. And just just googling or finding his poetry or his his fictional stories um, that he wrote specifically around the Christian you know holidays are very helpful. So yeah. that's just that's what I do. No, no, that's good. The the innkeeper that he wrote, uh, yes, is, is a good little book around Christmas time. That is, I think they've Crossway whoever's done a nice gift version of it, and it's yeah. it's a nice book to give away. Uh, you know, yep. believer or non-believer, yeah. it's it's good. Yeah, and then um, some things that I I just um, I know uh, I like to to read every year um, is one of them is by John Piper actually Fifty Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die um, and actually great yep. this is the book that you gave out at the um, members meeting. Oh, that's um, right. So many years ago yep. when when Joy and I took the class and I actually <laughs> used this in my class as a devotional. Um, which is why it's kind of worn and beat up. Um, but it's, it was just a really great book, um, because Piper goes through 50 reasons why, um, Christ came to die and just, you know, goes through that starts with, um, scriptures and then, um, just, you know, expounds on those scriptures, um, which is, which is just so great. Um, another one that I enjoy going through and, and Greg, like you were saying, um, probably wouldn't be able to read through it. Um, but mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which we've mentioned, because it's just, it's such a great overall defense of the Christian faith in general. Yeah, it is. Um, And so within that, you have Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection, which is um, wound up into one. Um, Another short book um, that, that if you wanted to try to get through, actually which encompasses some of that too. Um, and, and many people kind of are up in the air on this, but, um, uh, uh, more than a carpenter by Josh McDowell, uh-huh. you know, just another yeah. really great short book that, um, is, you know, uh, has that, um, logical reasoning for, for our faith. Um, and then one thing I do every year, um, since, since it was introduced to me is I, if you just Google, um, uh, medical reasons or, or medical explanations yeah, of the cross. Right. Oh, yeah, that, art, um, yeah. that article is just is so great because it just it gives you the inside track to what Christ physically went through. And I think sometimes we read over that, and it's yeah, okay, that's what happened. His side was pierced, or you know, he was hanging right. from the cross. But this actually depicts like, well, when you're hanging from the cross in that position, you can't breathe, and so you need to push up. Um, in order to to inhale air, and as you're pushing up, your your raw skin is is rubbing against this. Um, you know, we sometimes think of this, you know, shellacked wooden cross. Now, this is a you know rough wooden cross. Um, 
Yeah. And so just the things that were actually physically happening to Christ and what he physically went through and took in our place. Yeah. Um, so, well, Jeff, thank you so much once again for joining us. We're um, going to go ahead and sign off now. It's been uh, such a good time. Uh, Greg, thank you once again. Yeah, thank you. For, uh, been a blast as always. Insights. So, and um, <laughs> Jeff, yeah. Greg, we just rocked the Casper. Consider it rocked. <laughs> Thanks. These go to 11.